Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice you can make. Don't say we didn't warn you. I married a hamster in my friend Megan's basement. Aw. How is you your go. spouse? Dead, I presume. Yikes. I'm, so you yeah. are a widower. It was, you <laughs> you know, are a widow. <laughs> yeah, it was it was 23 years ago. And I, I think hamsters only live like maybe like five years. So yeah, at the most. The hamster's super dead. <laughs> Rest in peace. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yes. I don't even remember the hamster's name. It was a short-lived first marriage. Um yeah. Well, I was 14, so unlike Henry VIII's first marriage, which did drag on for a bit. Do you right. like my segue? Yeah. Yay. That's a good segue. Yeah. Let's yeah. All right. Well, let's yeah. I can I can I'll count us in. Okay. Um yeah. All right. Here we go. Welcome to the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Hamlet. And this week it's Henry VIII, two hundred one, sort of, kinda. We're not really going to talk sort about of. the play so much as maybe the person and the we people might. around him. We might talk about the play, I guess. Um, but thank you so much right. for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. This week we are joined by tutor expert and scholar extraordinaire Yasmin Hashimi. Hello, thank you for joining us. Hello. Uh, yeah. Um, Yasmin, tell us, tell us in your own words who you are and 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 why you are here. And why Henry the Eighth, why the tutor? <laughs> and why, yeah, you know, why do you exist? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> your reason well, for being my parents. <laughs> what is the meaning of life? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I don't know if they want me to share that story. So um, <laughs> hi everybody. Oh, <laughs> oh Jess. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm so glad they're not really into like tech and podcasts and stuff. <laughs> or social media, thank goodness. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Yasmin Hashimi. I am currently a public humanities postdoctoral fellow at the Newberry Library in Chicago. I recently finished my dissertation uh, at UC Davis, um, and it was on the eroticization of Tudor queens um, in early modern England and beyond. So I'm hello. really into the Tudors. I'm really into Tudor queens and thinking about how they're hypersexualized, how they're eroticized both in their own historical moment and today. Mm -hmm. So I think about, I basically trace the hypersexualization of Tudor queens across centuries and genres. So from 16th century letters and dispatches and plays to TV shows and fan fiction today. That's kind of my jam. Yeah, I'm really interested in how popular media and images of the pre-modern period either challenge or affirm our understanding of the past, particularly uh, with regards to sexuality and race. So I do work on um, color-conscious casting, the affordances and limitations of color-conscious casting in period dramas and stuff like that. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. And you you just had an article published, yeah, in Racing yeah. Queens? Yes, I did. Um, it is about um, Anne Boleyn and the optics of race. 
Mm. So I look at the ways in which I know all academics say the ways in which it sounds so fancy. Um, um, Basically, I wrote this article because I was looking at um, dispatches and letters um, and different archival material material on Anne Boleyn. And I noticed how when people were describing her skin color, the term swarthy kept coming up. Um, Or people would say, you know, she, Mm. her skin wasn't white her skin, you know, wasn't white enough. They use all these different words um, to describe her skin color. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I assume the people who are talking crap about her are like her enemies, right? Um, And then I started to notice how actually everyone's talking about her skin color in this way. Um, And I looked at big scholars, historians who've written about the Tudors, like Eric Ives, who wrote uh, the life and death of Anne Boleyn. Mm-hmm. He mentions it a little, little bit where he talks about like, oh, she was probably olive skin toned. Um, and Susan Bardot in the creation of Anne Boleyn also touches on it a bit, but I just felt like nobody really delved into it a lot. People were sort of like, well, she probably didn't have fair white skin, like her sister. And she wasn't this picture of like the beautiful Tudor Rose. And then they kind of moved beyond it. They're like, okay, we've talked about this. Let's let's keep moving. And I was like, well, wait a minute. If we think about that, and we also think about how she appears in portraits, although we don't, there's a lot of a debate over whether certain portraits or sketches we have of Anne are actually of her, or whether they were painted, they were sketches, and then they were painted afterwards. So I just thought that was really interesting. And the term swarthy, I was familiar with it because that's a term that's often used to describe Moors. Um, mm-hmm. North Africans in the pre-modern period, and I myself am Moroccan, so that was a term I was I was always keyed into when I would read literature, pre-modern literature, and they would use that term, um, and it felt really ambiguous. And I thought that's weird. She's definitely not North African. Why is she being described this way? So I just was like, hey, I'm going to write about this thing, um, and then put that alongside Jody Turner Smith's casting. Um, as Anne Boleyn for Channel 5 and AMC's uh, 2021 drama. And yeah, I had a I had an article. So it was really interesting because I thought the Anne Boleyn show with Jodie Turner-Smith opened up the door for me to talk about race alongside Anne Boleyn in a way that I guess you could say like legitimized it more than just me saying, hey, people are saying this about Anne and we're not paying attention to it. But to be like, we're still having these conversations now. You know, people are on Twitter complaining about Jodie Turner-Smith being a Black actress, a dark-skinned Black actress being cast as Anne Boleyn. So what possibilities does this open up for a broader conversation about race in the pre-modern period, about the way we reimagine the Tudor court and how diverse it was? So, yeah. That sounds awesome. If any of our listeners wanted to read that, how could they access that? Where can they find it? They can find it um, online with Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. Scholar and the Feminist online with Bernard College. It's open access. So they can just Google. (laughs) We'll we'll link it in our show notes. Cool. That sounds amazing. Um, I'm going to be honest. It's so weird talking about it um, as a published article because I've been waiting so long for it to come out. Jess read an early draft 
two yeah. years ago, like a maybe? year ago, oh, yeah, wow. a year yeah. or two. So oh, yeah. it just feels like yeah. you know, when trying to publish things, you have these great ideas and you write these papers or chapters or articles, and then you hope that they'll come out, and and it just takes so long. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited it's out. I hope you all read it. Yeah, it's out there in it's, the world. It's a banger, FYI. It is a banger. You do not want to miss it. And it's, um, if I if I may be so uh, reductive, I don't know. Um, it's not dense. It's not like thick, heavy, scholarly material that's hard to get through. It's like, it's really engaging and well-written and lively and insightful and exciting. So get on it, listeners. You will not well, be sorry. You. Yeah, it's meant to be read by people who aren't necessarily academics um, who may or may not be familiar with the tutors. I tried to make it as accessible as possible. You did very well. That's rad. And for those of us who live in a cave, what AMC show are you talking about with Jody Turner-Smith? Oh my God, Aubrey. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we have talked about this. Maybe we have. I don't know. What's the show? (laughs) It's called Anne Boleyn. Okay. Yeah. Um, I haven't watched that. I don't have AMC. It, it was with Fable Pictures and Channel okay. 5, I believe, in the UK. And okay. then it got picked up by AMC. Okay. So it's been out for two years, a year and a, a half. While. It's definitely been out for a while, a little bit longer in the UK than here. Gotcha. I'll have to do like an AMC free trial on my Prime channel or something so that I can watch it. Because I yeah. don't have, like, other than it's that, I really, don't have a way to watch it. Really interesting um, series. It's very dramatic. It's more like a thriller. The vibes are very like everything's high stakes. Mm. Um, it's the last few months of Anne's life. Mm-hmm. So it kind of starts when when the stakes are already high, right? Yeah. Um, it's a really interesting production. Joni Turner-Smith is a powerhouse actress. Mm-hmm. So I thought she's, she was absolutely fabulous as Anne Boleyn. I do have, of course, like critiques about the show in general, as one does when you're familiar with... Um, the historical figures that are in it. Um, but I really enjoyed like the makeup costumes. <laughs> Jodie Turner-Smith looks fabulous. Uh, okay. So I, the- oh, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. I, I was, well, I was going to segue just like you were going to segue. Cause oh, I have great. so many questions that I have yeah. actually been saving for you for this conversation oh, for fantastic. at least two months. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we should get through the other beginning minor, stuff before minor we- things. <laughs> yeah. Minor thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, 201 level episodes means that we operate on the assumption that folks listening know what basic play we're talking about. So you should know the story of Henry VIII. You shouldn't, mm-hmm. I mean, even if you don't know Shakespeare's version of the story of Henry VIII, you know some version Which, of it. Who does? Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. So we're not going to do like a yeah. synopsis of the play and stuff. 201s no. are for different reasons. They are for narrow yeah. and deep reasons, right, Jess? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and And frankly the Shakespeare's version is not different enough from history's version that if we gave you a synopsis, you would be misled in any way. So, (laughs) yeah. So instead Shakespeare and Fletcher. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So instead uh, in 201 level episodes, we just go narrow and deep on a couple of things that are tangential or, and, and related to the content of that play. Um, but first, yeah. before we do any of that, we have this thing, we have a feature called happy hour. It's a cocktail of stuff that just makes us happy. 
in this dumpster fire of life. We started it in 2020. Yes, I mean, just for a little bit of context, because we were like, oh, everything sucks. Um, so we've tried every episode since then to to find things that are inclusive or that involve decolonization or anti-racism or just simple happy joys like puppies and mm. things. Um, so we yeah. recommend things that are that are bringing us joy, giving us life right now. Um, mine is Wednesday on Netflix. I spent an entire afternoon binging that cute little show. I'm an Adams Family fan from way back. And this this show to me is like perfectly in line with that, where they everybody is able to deliver like the most macabre lines unironically. And it's so just chef's kiss hilarious. So I highly recommend it if you're into that sort of thing. Gwendolyn Christie is in that, correct? Mm -hmm. She is. She is. And she's dressed like what's her face from the birds. It's kind of great from that the girl Hitchcock movie yeah the one who gets attacked by birds yeah <laughs> okay the blonde the blonde lady in right the green in the, the old suit uh telephone booth yeah. <laughs> was like cabinet yeah. that's not the right word no I forget who that is because I saw that telephone movie one time I do I do Never yeah seen it. anyway um, um Wednesday it's great great yeah, I want to I want to recommend uh, a thing that I haven't actually done yet or a thing that I have done but haven't completely done whatever. Um I want to recommend using museum collections in your classes. Um I'm teaching African American literature in the spring and just for all of you out there who are like you're a white girl, why are you teaching that? Yeah, nope, I'm I'm a super white girl, but the alternative is that it doesn't get taught. So I'm doing it. Um, Thirty percent of my student body, my student body, the student body at the university where I work, uh, identifies as of color, and we have never had an AFAM lit class on the books, and that is not okay with me. So we're doing it. And one of the assignments that I just knocked up for that class um, is basically it's like glorified show and tell. Um, and what I'm having them do is go to the uh, online digital collections of the National Museum of African American History and Culture um, and just browse through the, the artifacts that they can see there, pick one, and then tell us about it. You know, what is it? When is it from? How was it made? Um, what is its significance? What does it mean? Why does that matter? Uh, it's I, I'm basically walking them into close reading from an object um, and I'm really hyped up about it. My assignment sheet, I think, is looking pretty good. I think it's going to be a really exciting and fun uh, assignment. And there are so many wonderful museums out there that have online collections that you can access and look at and, mm -hmm. you know, copy and paste a hyperlink and throw it up on a projector screen and have someone talk about it. And I think that, you know, we should we should make use of that material uh, a lot more. I think that is, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Yasmin, because you're the expert here, but that is public humanities right there. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I all of that to say that at like three o'clock in the morning, on I don't know Wednesday last week uh I was like I am in a different time zone and I don't like this assignment anymore I'm gonna throw it out I'm gonna make a new one here's an idea boom <laughs> so we'll see how it goes I'll report back uh at the end of the season um but 
I, I think it's a brilliant idea if I do say so myself, even though I'm not the first person to have that idea. So y'all should go do it. Um, yeah. Yasmin, do you have anything awesome that's just bringing you life right now? Yes. Um, romance novels. Oh, Any in particular? Yes. I love reading romance. Um, I would recommend, since this is kind of a section also about like thinking about inclusivity, I would recommend mm -hmm. reading diverse romance novels. And so I'm going to recommend Beverly Jenkins, who is just yes. a phenomenal romance writer. And um, my favorite book in her series, uh, out of all the ones she's written that I've read is Forbidden. It's a part of the Old West trilogy. Um, it has this amazing, sexy <laughs> man named Ryan Fontaine, um, who is actually passing as white to help his community. Um, and he falls in love with a dark skinned black woman who's an amazing chef. And so you get to see their relationship bloom and also what that means for Ryan as someone who's passing and what that means for the community. It's a really beautiful love story, and you also get to see their relationship progress in its later stages in the later novels in the series, which are about um, Edie's nieces, uh, the mm. heroine's nieces. So they come back, the couple comes back, and I'm a huge fan of getting to see a couple later in their relationship. Totally. I love when you get introduced to them, you've got all the feels and it's sexy and that you get your happily ever after. But I think it's quite nice when authors write a series and it makes sense to bring those characters back. So you get to see how they've matured and grown as a couple. So Beverly Jenkins, Forbidden, read it. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Not the first uh, romance novel we have recommended on this no. pod. And <laughs> Not the last, I certainly hope. So yeah, we're big fans too. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. All right. So the rest of this episode, we're just gonna we're just gonna dive right in. Just hit us with some of those questions okay, you've okay, been banking. Okay. No. Well, <laughs> so the my the questions I've been banking are a little off topic. Oh. Um so we'll save them okay for later in the episode. But to Should start, I be nervous? Oh God, no! God, no! Uh, -uh no! It's like, it's like the kind of shit that you and I text about. That okay, those are the yeah. questions. That I'm I ready yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I had like started to text you several times, and then I was like, no, save it for the pod. Save it for the pod. Save it for the pod. <laughs> yeah, so, that way it's fresh. Yes. Um. So we should say that uh, at the at the end of our last episode, we gave all of our listeners homework. We said, oh, go right. watch yes. Blood, Sex, and Royalty. Yes. Um, okay. Because that, we knew that that was going to uh, take up, I, I hope, uh, at least a good part of our conversation today. Um, so we can probably safely assume that a good portion of our listeners have gone and watched that. Um, so let's just maybe start there mm -hmm. with like, what is your take on that, Yasmin? And also, <laughs> did, does it, do you think, can you answer this question? <laughs> did the series live up to its promise to show us Anne like we have never seen her before? Well, to answer that question, I will say that in some ways, yes. I think mm -hmm. the show lived up to its promise of showing us an Anne we've never seen before. 
because this is a very interesting sort of modern take that I think was meant to appeal to Gen Z, I want to say, just based off of the style, the music that they used, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and the word, the words, the language that Anne was using. The vernacular, you know, was, totally. The vernacular was quite modern yeah. and sometimes jarring. Um and the breaking of the fourth wall, which I think so many people have become really familiar with that. People do it all the time, but I think Fleabag is one of the more recent shows that's done that mm-hmm. and it's worked really well. And yeah. then we've seen in other period dramas, um, more recently, the Serpent Queen on Star uh-huh. has moments. Uh-huh. Um, and we can talk about other, but we don't have to just limit ourselves to the tutors. That's <laughs> up to you all, because I'm ready to talk about period dramas you know, mm-hmm. all like all of them. Um, <laughs> I will, full disclosure, I'm not a huge fan of the docudrama genre. Okay. I'm someone who prefers my documentaries and my dramas to be separate. Same. Yeah. Yeah. I think it doesn't always work, right? Because you bring in these amazing historians um, who are usually well-known to talk about sort of like historical fact, which we know is like, they talk about the history. What do we know about, you know, say the Tudors? And then you put it, when you when you put in scenes that are intentionally dramatized, that take artistic liberties, it just doesn't work for me. It feels like unsolved mysteries to me. It feels too much like those <laughs> like crime reenactments. Um, yeah. I, and I, I, I get a little put off by that. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Me, I do as well. I will say I was so excited to see the scholars that they had um, yes. on deck. They have Susanna Lipscomb, who I remember the first time I saw her in a documentary um, or a special talking about the Tudors. And I was like, oh, my gosh, here's this young, beautiful, curly haired historian. Like, mm-hmm. maybe I, too, can do this <laughs> one day. Um, and she's just her scholarship is amazing. Um, then we have Tracy Borman, who's well known, Lauren McKay, who's written some amazing work. Um, she wrote Inside the Tudor Court about Ambassador Shapley, Spanish Ambassador Shapley, and I mm. read it as an undergrad, and it felt accessible. And that's that, so great. And so, so like I remember her as someone who I like could connect with. I could connect with her scholarship. Um, they have Owen Emerson, who's a curator at Hever Castle. And who is also incredibly accessible on Twitter and has been so generous when I'm sharing my ideas um, and stuff like that, which I love. I'm a huge fan of academics and scholars who are accessible to people and aren't mean on Twitter or don't have an air of superiority who really just want to be in dialogue and conversation with other people who are just as excited about the things that they are. And we also had Muriel McClendon and Nandini Das in the documentary. Mm -hmm. I love Nandini Das. Amazing women of color. And I will say, I think this is the first time I've seen a Tudor documentary that actually had scholars of color as experts. So I was really excited. I'm going to be honest and also say, as people were talking about this on Twitter, they primarily only highlighted the white scholars who are part of the documentary. And I found that to be really disappointing and unsurprising in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to see more people talking about the Tudors because the fact is there are so many of us who aren't white and love the Tudors and who have studied or have some sort of expertise. So I was excited to see 
that this docudrama did include women of color that who are mm-hmm. experts in the field. That was fabulous. I will also say I love the actress who played Anne Boleyn. I don't necessarily I've got issues in general with the script or the way it was written or imagined, <laughs> but I think she is incredibly talented as an actress. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed watching her. And to the question of, is this a different Anne Boleyn? In some ways, no, because it's sexy Anne Boleyn. You know, she's hypersexualized um, in the ways that she has been since Henry first wrote his love letters to her. That's right. something that in my own work, I trace the hypersexualization of Anne Boleyn back to Henry's letters. We don't have her responses. So when Henry is talking about her and he's saying like, oh, I can't wait to kiss your pretty duckies, which are breasts, when he's sending her um, deer meat and saying, when you eat this, I hope you think of me and conjuring mm-hmm. these sort of sexual images. Mm-hmm. A lot of scholars have projected that sexualization onto Anne as sort of, well, she must have invited it in some way. And I think that's an incredible misreading. Yeah. Um, And we see it again. I'm ready to talk about Shakespeare and Fletcher's Henry VIII because it's there too. There's imagery of Anne on her back, on her knees, servicing the king. So is this any different when in Blood, Sex, and Royalty, we see Henry gift Anne with sexy Tudor lingerie it's not even Tudor lingerie let's be honest with sexy lingerie and a kimono (laughs) right a lacy mono okay lace satin robe situation going on like it's not that different in in that way yeah yeah I think their biggest thing was like oh she's she's also well read and and like nerdy and subversive and stuff you know feminist that yeah. was kind of the big message was Anne Boleyn was a feminist. And I saw a lot of uh, feedback online where people were like, wait, we might need to walk this back a bit because our understanding uh, of feminism yeah. is very different from what's going right. on in that period. And so I think it's important for us to remember that, you know, the historians who take part in these things, I've never taken part in one of, in a drama, a docudrama or a documentary yet. Um, we'll share yeah, my still contact time. <laughs> information at the end in case somebody wants uh-huh. to get a hold of me. Um, but I also know their involvement is quite limited. I don't know that they get a say on advising right. how the sort of like drama side of it is written or shot or acted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's also important to sort of separate. And they certainly don't, I don't think they get a say in how it's advertised. So if Netflix is advertising this as like sort of feminist Anne Boleyn, that might not necessarily be what the historians think. Sure. Um, And we are always trying to invite new audiences to think about the historical past and historical figures. So I definitely see this docudrama as a way of getting a younger, newer generation excited about the Tudors. I I forget who said it, uh, but the the person who was like, "Oh yeah, Anne introduced the idea of charity to the royal family." Like, oh yeah. Are you shitting me? Like, that's not even a little bit true. And Catherine of Aragon was quite charitable. She was known So charitable. Yeah. But we do know Anne gave alms to the poor as well. So, I mean, sometimes, yeah, I do wonder about the sort of like sweeping statements, but I do Mm -hmm. think I try to be so generous (laughs) when I'm thinking about 
you know, what people say and how this is just really meant to be an introduction for people who mm -hmm. don't really know about Anne. Mm -hmm. And it's hope hopefully an entry point where they'll pick up some books and start reading about it. Um, and form their own ideas and understanding of the past. Yeah. So yeah, but I, I think we texted about that. We were like, oh, yes. wait a minute. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and I also wonder how things get edited together. And right. I mean, I, you know, put my foot in my mouth quite regularly or say things where I'm like, oh gosh, I wish I didn't say it or I wish mm -hmm. I had worded it differently. I'll probably do that quite a few times with you all today. <laughs> so I try to be very generous <laughs> when yeah. I other other academics saying things and I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. And like, they don't have, they might not have the chance to respond, you know? Right. So I try to give people the benefit of the doubt a little bit, but yeah, there were definitely some things where I was like, mm, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it is true, right, that this this was what? It was three hours. And of those three hours, probably 80% of it was the, like, fictionalized stuff. Right. So, you know, we we probably saw maybe half an hour, 40 minutes of, like, expert testimony, for lack of a better word. If that. Um, yeah. Yeah, right? And then, like surely they did not sit down with each one of those people for only 10 minutes. Like there's gotta right. be so much more that they said right. that just ended up on the cutting room floor. Right. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's all very like with a grain of salt sound bites coming out of context. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's fair. That's all yeah. fair. It was, it was really interesting. I mean, definitely in the first 10 minutes when you had, <laughs> Anne Boleyn walking into an orgy mm, right with, like rap music in the background I was like oh okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> interesting way to set the tone um also interesting to use you know like rap music mm -hmm. and not really have any people of color I think I remember seeing like one black actor in the show so it's interesting yeah. to see how people appeal to a modern audience like what they think will attract a modern audience you can have a black woman rapping on the track in the background but do like are there other right. people of color mm -hmm. obviously that wasn't necessarily the focus of this specific documentary um no and there was also there there was an actress of color who was lady w so right. i don't oh wanna, yeah uh -huh, uh -huh. you know so there are probably you know a few but you know we don't get to see them as much as not Henry and Anne who are like the focal point right so. mm -hmm. I thought um the the guy who played Henry I thought he was very well cast he was mm -hmm. very handsome mm -hmm. exactly you get a right. redhead for all the people that uh -huh. were hating on Jonathan Reese Myers being casted uh -huh. I hope you're all happy yep <laughs> like tall drink of water was happy with that he was yeah he was I very handsome. however I am so, so disappointed with the casting of George Boleyn. Really? I mean, oh, yeah. Homie looked like he was about 11. And he did have a young aspect. He yeah, he seemed beautiful. like sort of young and immature. Yeah, not sexy at all. And I guess there's no law that says that George Boleyn has to be sexy. <laughs> but by extension with his two sisters one of whom is hypersexualized and the other mm -hmm. of whom we only know because of her sexual exploits with two kings of england or two kings of two europe kings, england and france yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i feel like george boleyn has to be hot that is my personal feeling 
I -hmm. subscribe to the the church of George Boleyn being a hottie with a body. And that guy did not do it for me. So I think he was meant to be the comedic relief. Yeah. That's the sense that I got. Yeah. Um, Because he would joke around with Anne a lot, Mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, raise eyebrows. Hey, hey. Like, you know, he was her best friend. He was in on what was going on. That was what I got out of it. That he was kind of meant to be like the funny younger brother. And then they just sort of, I really felt like they brushed the accusation of incest aside at the end like like that it was not a a really like they're they're like we've arrested these guys also your brother yeah like the allegation came out of nowhere yeah and then was like piled on to everything else Mm -hmm. yeah I wonder if that's sort of like an editing issue yeah where they took it out or if they were like you know what we've made this way too sexy already (laughs) if we throw incest on top of it and really dive in it's just going to be too much or maybe they thought some people don't want to hear about incest, which is kind of surprising considering Game of Thrones and all that. Hello! <laughs> and House of the Dragon, which I haven't seen yet. Oh but, we, you know, all I hear is people talking about incest. So Yeah, that's all I it think, is. I don't want to say I think there's an audience for it, but they oh. totally could have gone there. And I don't think... There super is. I don't think people would have been surprised. And obviously, it's a part of the historical record. So, yeah. Right. Um, I, I want to go back to the yeah. casting of Henry. Um, (laughs) because I think I saw a few people who were like, this is the best interpretation of Henry we've seen. And I'm sorry, but on behalf of Jonathan Reese Myers, I'm offended. Um, I know that (laughs) JRM doesn't look like how we imagine Henry for sure, like physically, Uh but I think to me, he captured the intensity and the ferocity and the menace and the passion and, and just how like complex but also the allure of how like this is someone who people thought was really attractive but was also so dangerous right Mm -hmm. um I don't necessarily think the actor in blood sex and royalty captured all of that for me um I think he could have been a bit more menacing yeah he came across to me as kind of petulant right? Which is an aspect of Henry VIII as well. And he's a tall, handsome ginger, right? Which by all accounts, Henry was, right? Until he got that horrible abscess on his leg and whatever later in life, right? Um, Max Parker is his name. Max Parker. I think aesthetically, he's probably the closest. He looked the the part for sure. Of a young Henry. Yeah. Which was. Yeah. No, but I agree with you. JRM is like, he's kind of definitive Henry. For me personally, I love me too. Yeah, yeah. And He's I know historians don't agree with me. They always pick other people. I Ray Winston, I thought was interesting as Henry VIII, and um, Richard Burton. Anne of the Thousand Days is one of my favorites, and we could talk about this also like later. <laughs> but that was they had an interesting Genevieve Bujold and Richard Burton had an interesting chemistry, and I quite liked it. So mm-hmm. I think I don't know everybody brings a little something different to the table. Mm-hmm. And I also think because we saw JRM as Henry for four seasons, we, you know, maybe it's because I've seen it. I've also rewatched it too many times to count or admit. Um, but he got to dive into the character and perhaps ways the people who played Henry for like a three episode thing or a film right. maybe didn't get to do. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, I think a bigger fan or maybe a better fan. I, the, the idea of 
you know, plain Henry across more or less his whole life, right? From 18 to however old he was when he died, 50 something. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a that's an enormous character arc. And by all accounts, he was so different as a young man versus an old man. To me, that that feels like you know, the like actors who want to play Richard III through the whole cycle of the Henrys or actors yeah. who want to play Henry V through the whole cycle of that Henry mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever, because you, you're, you're doing, you're doing, whoop, you're throwing your microphone around. <laughs> you're doing, you're very you know, passionate about this conversation, yes. I can tell. Yeah. Wildly <laughs> yeah. gesticulating. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. You know, you're microphone doing problems. You're doing one character, right? But but you're you're not. You're doing you know three or four or five different characters essentially. Yeah, it's their whole um, lifespan, you know. Yeah, and yeah, I, but I so think so many I of think these that's films not... do the time jump. Mm-hmm. Like they move very quickly through. Yeah, but I think like a span think... of 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, but I think giving giving an actor the the space like in this to to play one character over really a couple of years is the right call like yeah you know we get him as early as what is it 15 20 something like 15, with 20 something yeah field, field of, of cloth, cloth of gold, of gold. Mm-hmm. yeah but like really the bulk of the action of this takes place between like 1529, 1530 and 1536. And that is, I think, the ideal amount of time for an actor to really like settle into that role and be like, okay, Henry is in love with Catherine. Then Henry is starting to have a change of heart about Catherine. Henry is completely overtaken by lust for Anne and then settles into that and then she doesn't produce a a male heir and then he you know does what he does and chops off her head and it's yeah and also 1536 is such a huge year for henry and Mm -hmm. Susanna lipscomb has a book 1536 the year that changed henry and it really zooms in on everything that happens in that one year which aubrey had mentioned um henry's accident Mm-hmm. And how he ends up with like an abscess on his leg. And that com- yeah. that also is a part of the sort of, I don't want to, some people have said it's like a personality change that he has, mm-hmm. but once he's injured, you know, then you start to also see a different side of him. Right. And he's also he's- not as mobile and athletic. Mm-hmm. He's always been a very athletic person or he was a very athletic man. And to yeah. that, to be injured and not be able to still have that same level of athleticism and to possibly have other injuries, whether it's a brain mm-hmm. injury or whatever, from having a horse fall on you. Yeah. Um, so I think depending on whether a series decides to show all of that, even that one year, there's such a huge mm-hmm. transformation. In I mean, that the that one leg injury alone, frankly, is enough to make anyone have a personality change if you have to go overnight basically from jousting and hunting and fighting and whatever playing tennis and wrestling to not doing any of those things like that would make anyone resentful you have to find new hobbies and maybe they're chess and maybe you think chess is boring like (laughs) you know 
poor Henry. And also, like, yeah, he was a colossal asshole to a lot of people, including mm, all of his wives. But, like, you know, he there were things that made him that way. He's um, also like a selfish, like when you're a king, like everything's all about yeah. you, right? So, yeah. and yeah, when you being... become king at 18, right? Yeah. And when you weren't supposed to be king, right? Mm-hmm. You were the second, you were the spare. Yep. So there's, there's a lot that goes into how like he was coddled in his youth. He was closer mm-hmm. with his mom and sisters, you know, his grandmother took an interest in him because he was meant to be in the church. You know, there's just a lot that you, that I think obviously went into sort of forming his character and he loved music. He loved sports. He was kind of like a Renaissance man in many ways. I mean, let alone that he lived in the Renaissance. (laughs) It was a man. (laughs) 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 I'm here all week, folks. (laughs) Um, So Yasmin, here's a, here's a question for you. You know, we have been talking now for I don't even know how long about the sexualization of Anne Boleyn. Yeah. But of all of Henry's wives, for me, Catherine Howard is the obvious choice to be the, like, sexy, sexualized one. Because, Mm -hmm. hello, Thomas Culpepper. Like, Mm -hmm. so why, why does Anne have this cultural obsession that she does where does that come from and why has Catherine Howard been passed over RIP well I don't think she's been passed over I just think she wasn't in the picture for very long okay um she was also young which is another reason why it's problematic right she was like I think there's there's been 15 or 16 wasn't she perhaps she wasn't people had said 14 I think there's been recent talk where maybe she was a bit older than that she was still like a teenager Uh, and he was we would call a minor Right. And he was much older and injured and, you know, in his, is that what people consider the twilight years? I don't know. Like you're in your fifties. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Anyways, he was older. older. Um, But I think with Anne, you know, I won't speak for everyone else. I think everyone's response to like why Anne can differ a little bit, but Mm Catherine was so beloved and Henry loved her when they first wed, you know, he wanted to marry her. His father didn't want him to marry her. He was set on it. Mm -hmm. Um, All accounts show how in love they were with each other, that they enjoyed doing things together. They sort of had their own Camelot. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then comes Anne, right? Because and it's right. not even and then comes Anne. I'm sort of skipping over the fact that like Henry wants a male heir and and yeah. Catherine is getting older and she has several miscarriages. There's been stillbirths. Mm-hmm. Um and so and Henry's like a spoiled brat, but also he knows that in order for his line to be secure, he needs a male heir. Mm-hmm. And and then along comes Anne. Um and I think one of the reasons she gets the focal point is she's maybe we could say she's like the other woman. Sure. You know, she comes along. She sort of seems like a homewrecker. Um, I'm not saying she is. But I'm just thinking yeah, about the yeah, way yeah. that I hear people today talking about right. her. Um, and Henry courted her for, I think, about eight years. So she definitely oh God, wasn't somebody yeah. who, like, gave it up quickly. Um, and we see that from his love letters to her where oftentimes she tries to evade him 
she leaves court. Mm-hmm. He sends letters to her and he's like, you're not answering the letter. So I'm sending a servant to give you this letter. And this servant isn't going to leave until you respond. So he forces responses from her. And I think mm-hmm. he's quite aggressive and basically stalks her. And he uses, I, I'm so interested in how the material letter and like the how epistolary culture really allows for this, right? Because mm-hmm. this was a time when letters weren't private. And yet Henry's sending what's supposed to be private letters to Anne. Um, and he writes them in his own hand, which is, which is really important because he hated writing and they're, they're in some of his later letters, he mentions how like word has like gotten out about them. And in fact, like people are perhaps other people are reading his letters Mm -hmm. and it, that becomes a problem. So he starts writing in code to her. And we Mm -hmm. also know that I think around this time. Henry becomes interested in privacy so he has like a lock for like the door that like leads Mm -hmm. to his chamber so where we're thinking about like where where does privacy exist with him and Anne it's not in the court right it's not in the true report because everyone's watching them there's so many servants how many people's hands do those letters pass through Mm -hmm. what happened to Anne's letters to Henry we know Henry's letters to Anne ended up at the Vatican because they were stolen from her rooms Um, so we already know there's issues around, uh, privacy and they loved hunting. So I actually think they, a a lot of their courtship took place outdoors because outdoors in some ways was a bit more private than, you know, the spying and espionage that's going on in the Tudor court. So I think all of that really leads to, it seems like this sort of like illicit affair Mm -hmm. and that seems really sexy to people, right? The fact that the King was happily married for so long, this younger woman comes along who seems so different from the other women in the Tudor court because she was educated in France and um, has different ideas and opinions um, than most young women at the time, or at least certainly in England, she's bringing over these interesting religious ideas with her. Um, and the fact that she holds out, she doesn't want to be a mistress. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's, con- he's chasing her and whether that was strategy on her part, um, whether it was actually, I'm trying to get away from this man. Cause I'm not interested in him or like, how do you even say no to a King? That's something mm-hmm. I thought about so much, um, in my undergrad where I, I wrote my undergrad thesis on Henry's love letters to Anne. And it's like, how do you say no to a King? Like, can you? Is that even in the realm of possibility is her only option to flee (laughs) and go back to her home at Hever? Um, And then at what point do you realize there's no escaping it? And perhaps this is going to have to be the end game. And so what can I get out of this or how can I make this work for me? Mm -hmm. Um, Those are the ways I sort of imagine it happening. And so I think so much of the reasons why we sexualize Anne are because she was the mistress for so long, even though she didn't have sex with him though a lot of scholars seem to agree that some sort of sexual activities were going on you know he's thinking about kissing her breasts is it is it because he's just fantasizing about her has he seen them before has he kissed them before you know we don't know how much of the letters are fantasy and how much are because you know something more intimate has already happened between them although Mm -hmm. as you read the letters in the order we think they were written, there's definitely a point in which it seems Anne has given in to him. 
and not necessarily like slept with him, but that they agreed that like, okay, I'm going to marry you. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to, let's get the legatine court together. Let's try to make, let's try to annul my first marriage. And I think one of the reasons it's so easy to sexualize both Anne and Catherine, but especially Anne is because we don't have her responses. We have so much more material um, about Catherine. And in fact, Catherine very strategically framed and created her reputation. Anne didn't really get a chance to do that. So I think it's really easy to sort of sexualize her because she's the mistress. She's the second wife. I think Catherine and Howard does get sexualized a lot. I mm-hmm. mean, that's, I don't think it's on the same scale because we're already on wife number five. And I think right. it's exhausting at this point. So yeah. I don't think Catherine gets as much attention. But the fact that she's so young, the fact that we know she did have an affair, she mm-hmm. definitely slept with Thomas Culpepper. Um, and we have a letter that she wrote to him, right? right? And that she might have even slept with Francis Deerham, who, mm-hmm. like, prior to Thomas Culpepper. Uh, and um, and then Henry finds out and has her executed as well. I think they're both sexualized. I think Anne is just more interesting in many ways. Okay. Because he wanted her for so long and couldn't have her. Then mm-hmm. he gets her. She doesn't give him a son. And so he's like, okay, on to the next one. That's a very good answer. Thank you. Is there also space for me to say that I think Jane Seymour is boring as hell? Oh my um, god, she's so boring. She is like boring. Her. I don't like her. I know, like, as a scholar, you're not supposed to have favorites. We all have favorites. I think people who don't are lying. Mm-hmm. Um, I see a lot of people who are like, we should really think about Jane Seymour in a different light. And I'm like, I refuse. I will She's not think about her. But like, <laughs> ugh. And also, can we just talk about we're birdwalking? But whatevs, it's our podcast. We do what we want. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the bullshit, just absolutely grating way that her son Edward the Sixth was portrayed in becoming Elizabeth? Like, what a spoiled fucking brat that kid was. I'm not going to lie. I kind of liked that. Okay. Portrayal. Because okay. I mean, it was a choice. <laughs> it was a choice. And I think the point was that he was Henry's son. He sure. was this spoiled brat. And I love, there's this moment when he cusses at Dudley yeah, and the good. other guy, I can't remember his name. And when yeah. they're walking away, Dudley and whom the other courtier are saying like, wow, he sounds just like his dad. Yeah. And so I was like, that's really interesting. Um, and he was entitled. I mean, I don't know, you know, it's always hard to sort of like make, um, assumptions about people's personalities Mm -hmm. when we might not have like the full picture, but I thought what becoming Elizabeth was doing with the sibling dynamics was really interesting and compelling and hadn't been done before. And I want to say for the record, I'm still annoyed and angry that it didn't get a second season. I'm super yes. It. The Serpent Queen got a second season and not to compare, uh, but I was like, what? Uh, yeah, like, I think I need to see Becoming Elizabeth. It's in my queue. I just haven't watched it yet. But I mean, there's a lot of sex. No shit. <laughs> in a series about the Tudors? What? Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Yeah. There are things that the show does that I don't think works. 
mm-hmm. becoming Elizabeth. And Agreed. a lot of it has to do with Elizabeth's relationship with Thomas Seymour. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I don't know that what the show was trying to do worked with viewers. Yeah. Because they were trying. And from what I read, I wrote about this in a chapter in my dissertation. But from what I read of the showrunner and um, the actors on the show, the whole point was that Thomas Seymour was grooming her. And mm-hmm. this is a very complicated relationship. He's her stepfather. She, He's living in the same home as her. And so they have him, you know, like burst into her bedroom in the morning and tear her sheets away, her covers away. There's a lot of flirting going on in front of Catherine Parr, who was his wife at the time, in front of everyone else who was there. There's the ripping her clothes off, which happened. Is yep. a historical record that one day, one day, uh, Thomas Seymour and Catherine Parr were like playing with Elizabeth and Catherine Parr holds Elizabeth while Thomas Seymour like rips her clothes mm. off, um, which is really troubling. Horrifying. I, and so I, the show was trying to show, the show was trying to show <laughs> grooming from Elizabeth's perspective, how mm-hmm. captivating Thomas Seymour was, how she was attracted to him, how she thought he was sexy and wanted to marry him, but then he marries her stepmom. Mm-hmm. And then he starts to come on to her. And I think, and so they were trying to show it from a young girl's perspective where he would be sexy to her and he would be appealing. But I think in doing so, it really, and I think maybe it was meant to sort of blur those lines of consent. I don't think from what I read of even historians who watch the show, Tudor aficionados and audiences, it didn't work. No. They were like, he's too sexy. And they made it seem like this was super consensual. Like yeah. this was really problematic. And I think that's, you know, that happens sometimes, What, no matter how many times you do interviews and tell an audience, like, this is what we're going for. We really want to talk about grooming, which is actually an important conversation that we're having in, in this particular historical moment as well. And we want to talk about like men mm-hmm. who have power over women yeah. um, and what these complicated relationships look like. When people don't get it, when it like sort of misses, like then like, what do you do besides more interviews to say that's not, yeah. we're, we're not saying that this was okay. And we're not saying, and so I, they did so many interesting things. That I was hoping if we got a second season, we'd get more. And also I think it's important to mention if you only watch the first couple of episodes, you would have a completely different perspective than when you see the last few where Elizabeth is then like, I was taken advantage of by Mm -hmm. an older man and you were all like, you all let me live with him. You know, this wasn't cool at all. Like when you see her evolution, even as like a young person, I think it works better when you have that full picture, but not everyone's going to tune in for every episode. Yeah. So on the subject of becoming Elizabeth, can I just say, and I can, because again, it's my podcast and I make the rules. <laughs> um, Elizabeth's story, I think, from start to finish is interesting, but it really gets fucking interesting once Edward dies. Yeah. And we've never, like, no one, no show or movie ever has, like, hung out in those years, in the merry years. Right. And I want to see that so badly. And also, I want a Mary Tudor show because she's 
fucking great. And I want what's her name who played her in Becoming Elizabeth to play her because oh my god she was good. I think that's why so many viewers were disappointed it didn't get a second season because a lot of us saw the potential. Mm-hmm. And we knew that I mean spoiler alert the season ends with Edward getting sick and coughing up blood and we know the end is yeah <laughs> right um, it's like right <laughs> let me cough delicately into my handkerchief oh no yeah so yeah. there was the promise of seeing you know Edward die Mary the having the Jane Grey situation mm-hmm. having Mary getting to see the Dudleys also I loved getting to see the Dudleys. I want uh, way more Robert Dudley. I want yeah. that. And I loved sort of seeing that what was it Amy Ro- Robes Robstar? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rob Sart. Rob yeah. Sart. I I really enjoyed getting to see like how that situation happened. Uh-huh. Um, and then Elizabeth's reaction. So there was so much potential. Um, the actress who plays Mary Roma Roma Garai. I always say her name the wrong way. Um, anyways, the actress who played Mary in Becoming Elizabeth was so powerful, so, so compelling. She was literally just Ugh. like fire on screen. Yeah. And so I think it was a huge loss not to yeah. get to see more. Yeah. Stars, if you're listening, you fucked up. Seriously, um, there's stars. There's still time. There's still time to bring it back. Yeah, bring it back. Pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. I want, I really am invested in seeing this cast. Yeah take on Edward's death, Jane Grey getting the throne, then Mary taking over, and what happens between the siblings, how Mary and Elizabeth's relationship changes during that time. I think it would just be really interesting. So I agree. Like, this show was doing something different, and there was the Mm -hmm. promise of something different, and we don't, we didn't really get to it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I am mindful of time. (laughs) Uh, and so I, I'm going to bring us, I think, to my last question okay. for our good friend, Yasmin, um, that is like the, the off topic one that I teased. Okay. We didn't so, even talk about Shakespeare and Fletcher's Henry VIII yet, did we? No, nah, yeah. I mean, we mentioned it, but like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> it's look, we make the rules. We do what we want. It it is didn't you promise your listeners? Play. That this no. is going to be <laughs> no. no. At the very no. top, you will recall I said it's no. Henry VIII, kinda. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also at the end of the last episode, we were like, we're gonna be talking about the show. So yes. yeah. and yes. also, also, Fair. everybody who's listened to us for any amount of time already knows yeah. that it is by far <laughs> on the bottom of our list of plays yeah. that we don't care about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, so. it's become a favorite. But that's, that's only great. because I've worked on it for so long. Sure. And it's not a favorite because I think it's the best. It's my sure. favorite because it's Shakespeare and Fletcher writing about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn and Catherine are in there. So Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Catherine has a killer moment, you know, mm-hmm. in the yes. play. There's, of course, the the lion cub on Pride Rock, the way it ends, yes. you know. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of, those are the highlights for me. And that's it. Yeah. That's yeah. all I got. There's not yeah. as much drama. I will say I expected more drama. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't as much. It's and really that surprised me. Yeah. It is. It's just like the Cardinal and Henry yeah. and Cardinal and just. Speechy, it's it's, speechy, men, speechy, it's speechy. a lot of men gossiping. Yep. So if you're into yeah, that. Yeah. i'm not saying that's what i'm into i'm into the scenes with the women so yes totally so what was that question jess 
Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> we we have covered uh, the sexualization of Tudor queens pretty extensively. Um, I think we can accept that that is a fact. That ha- That is a thing that happens. It is a cultural phenomenon. We, it is observable. Great. At what point, like, is it is it a uh, a historical remove or um, like what it, what is it that causes queens to be sexualized? And when will Queen Victoria get sexualized? And when will Queen Elizabeth II get sexualized? Really, when will when will QE2 get sexualized? Because Homegirl was stacked. Did you see her boobs? She was so <laughs> hot when she was young. Take that face away, Aubrey. She was so hot. So, like, what what causes a queen to be sexualized, and why why these queens, and why not the more modern queens? That's such a big question. I know. I mean... I'm sorry. I've been meaning to text you for like months about this. I mean, I have a one word answer for why these queens were sexualized, and that word is patriarchy. But that's definitely okay. go ahead, like, yes, me. No, that's definitely at the core. If we're thinking about the Tudor period, you know, queens were meant to join houses, join families, join lineages, join countries together, and their children, they were meant to produce children that then carried on those lines. So they had a political function, and part of the way that function was fulfilled was through sex, right? You have to produce children. Um, So I think that's one of the reasons. Why does it keep happening? I will say that I think... I think period dramas and like the medium of television allows queens to be sexualized. It sort of like capitalizes on the medium. At least that's what I've seen with Anne Boleyn because we don't just say Anne Boleyn is sexy or show her, you know, the way we show her as sexy is by undressing her on screen, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's on blood, sex and royalty, Henry giving her lingerie and then the lingerie coming off, whether it's on the Tudors with Natalie Dormer's Anne Boleyn, where Henry Mm -hmm. first fantasizes about her naked. And then Mm -hmm. we actually see her naked when they're having sex um, Mm -hmm. later on, both before and after marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say the same thing happens with Catherine of Aragon, though. So in The Spanish Princess, which is Mm -hmm. on Stars, um, it aired from 2019 to 2020. You know, we get the very religious, passionate Catherine of Aragon, but we also get a very, a more sexualized version of her than we've ever seen. We just, Mm -hmm. we often think of her piety um, as something that's one of her most important characteristics. And in this show, it sort of gets put alongside with her knowing, Catherine knowing that she's meant to be Queen of England. And so she will use any means necessary to fulfill God's destiny mm-hmm. for her to be queen. And part of that is having, you know, sex with Henry. And there's an interesting, I think a season, is it season one or season two? I can't remember anymore. Um, where Henry's kind of put off and she undresses in front of him. And she's just like, don't you still find me attractive? Like, let's do this. We've got to make a son. And he's not into it. So she drops to her knees and he's like, mm-hmm. what are you doing? And she's just like, I'm your wife. Like, we've got to, we've got to make a baby. So, and he's like, no, 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 no. Like, this is, this this is not appropriate. Like, you shouldn't be doing Mm -hmm. this. And so Mm -hmm. there's this interesting scene where he's like, has her get on the bed, has her show her neck. And I think maybe tells her like, turn around. And she's like, I'll do whatever I have to do to like, get you off so that like, we can 
so that I can get pregnant kind of a thing. So we definitely see a different Catherine in the Spanish princess. And I think one of the ways that I think these period dramas show female agency and empowerment is through sexual agency. Sure. But I think sometimes it can be problematic. I don't think there's anything wrong with finally showing a sexualized Catherine because Mm -hmm. maybe she enjoyed having sex with Henry. Mm -hmm. Good for her. Um, But I think the medium definitely allows that to be capitalized on. And then I think of what it means for audiences who are seeing actresses playing these queens, taking their clothes off and Mm -hmm. having sex and how often that happens. Um, So I think in terms of Tudor queens specifically, I think that's been interesting. And I'm curious if it's going to continue, if mm-hmm. that's one of, if sexual agency um, is going to be one of the ways we continue to see that, or if we're going to move on to more nuanced ways of showing Tudor queens that doesn't just bank on their sexuality. Um, with Victoria, I'm less invested in Victoria, you all. Like, I'm not going to lie. Um, sure. I watched the show. It was good. I thought it was PBS good. show? But, like, yeah. Yeah. I watched me too. the series. She's not my favorite. So does it mean to say I don't really care about her? I don't really care about her. It's fine. Um, whether or not Queen Elizabeth is I feel like it's too soon. Like feel disrespectful to talk about her in this way. Sure. But also like I think having like distance from when someone was alive allows you to reimagine them in different ways. Okay. Um so I think it was probably easier to show like on a show like the crown is probably easier to show Elizabeth um, with Philip in their younger mm-hmm. years than later on as it's moving closer to when she was actually alive. Cause it's like uncomfortable, but like when you right. think about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, people are like, well, it was 500 years ago, whatever. Well, and um, there's mystery. There's mystery to that, right? Like you said, we only have one half of the side of the correspondence, right? right. Like by the time Queen Elizabeth II had ascended the throne, like we had cameras, we had typewriters, like there were all kinds of documentation. You know what I'm they saying? They had like, their own reality. There's though. radio. There's like all <laughs> kinds of other technology that has been documenting her every move. Right. Like there's just not yeah. there's not the same air of mystery there to her. You know, and they had their own TV show, reality show, yeah, to did. sort of try to keep them relevant, which was really yeah. disturbing. Um, the, the bits that I saw were really disturbing, and mm-hmm. we of course have the infamous uh, recording of Charles with Camilla, <laughs> which I could I tell you, I could have lived my whole life without seeing that reenacted. Nobody need that. Yeah. Um, yeah. in the latest season, um. Ooh. Yeah, so there's like so much of them. We have like the tabloids, you know, right. we didn't necessarily have that then, but we did have a right. lot of people writing about Henry and Anne. Right. Um, certainly a lot of people who were writing about like her execution because that was so huge. Like first queen to get like beheaded. Sure. Like mm-hmm. so yeah. I don't know. And also I think about is there are we seeing any sort of difference between when we have male writers and directors and creatives producing Mm -hmm. these versus when there's women behind the scenes. I mean, the Spanish princess had um, women behind the scenes and writers. So did becoming Elizabeth. So, I mean, sometimes I wonder about that. I'm like, I I think we definitely see more more nuanced takes when women are telling the stories, which I really Mm -hmm. appreciate. It's not just like, I love Showtime's The Tudors, but it definitely felt like every other episode's like tits out and who's tits, who cares? Just like somebody 
We need to like have <laughs> anyone, a woman. Anyone. <laughs> anyone. <laughs> you anyone. know? And then like the well, nearest either, tits. It's either gonna be Henry sleeping with her or Charles Brandon. And I mean, I wasn't mad when it was Charles Brandon because he was played oh, by Henry Cavill. Henry and, as you know, Cavill. I love Henry Cavill. So oh any my opportunity God. for him to take off his shirt, I was like, let's go. <laughs> give me, give me, give me, give me. That butt, though. <laughs> I actually, I'm a fan of like his chest. <laughs> I mean, yes, I'm a fan of all of him. Every, yeah. like, every, you know, all of top Henry to Cavill. toe. If you ever want to do a podcast about Henry Cavill, I'm your girl. <laughs> yes, yes, please. All right, let's well, all have a moment of silence for just. Let's like, all have a moment of silence. Um, to think about Henry Cavill's Henry, beautiful body. A Henry Cavill mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. Great. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> um. Well, I think maybe that brings us to yeah. sort of our end. Mm-hmm. Am I allowed to share some reading yes. recommendations? Yes, please, 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 please. Yes. yes, ma'am. Okay, so if you are into Anne Boleyn, the Tudors, um, any of these sort of pre-modern period dramas, I am taking um, the first book I want to recommend just came out. It's um, by Natalie Gruniger, who is the host of the Talking Tutors podcast, and it's called The Final Year of Anne Boleyn. Mm. It is at the top of my, like, to-be-purchased TBR list, mm. um, so I'm definitely going to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, Estelle Perenk just came out with, well, it, her book just got released in the United States, Blood, uh, Blood, Fire, and Gold, which is about Queen Elizabeth I's relationship with Catherine de' Medici. Ooh, so that's also a little bit of Serpent Queen crossover. Yeah. I'm into it. Um, okay. Although I think the idea of calling, I've I've seen I follow Estelle on uh Twitter and she's so incredibly generous and wonderful. I always want to mention that to people whenever somebody's nice to me and they don't, you know, I'm like, oh my yeah. gosh, like thank you. And somebody who's like supportive of other like younger scholars, it just like I'm like, you're amazing. Okay, I'm mm-hmm. gonna. I'm totally going to tell people about like your scholarship and and your work and what a great person you are. Absolutely. Um, so I'm excited to read that. Um, but she has mentioned, you know, even calling Catherine de' Medici the serpent queen, like there's issues around that. So oh sure, I'm, I'm sure excited to dive. To her, so yeah, and I'm excited yeah. to dive more into this relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, third book is Joanne Paul's The House of Dudley. Ooh. So if you watch Becoming Elizabeth and you couldn't get enough of the Dudleys, that book is for you. If that Dudley was not played by a young Joseph Fiennes, I don't want no part of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I, no. I, he's but, pretty okay. cute, though. He's no young he Joseph is. Fiennes, but he's pretty cute. <sighs> okay, fine. He is. Yeah. And his feelings for Elizabeth, the way he plays it, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, there were a couple of scenes that just like... I didn't think I was going to be that invested in his relationship with Elizabeth at all, to be honest. I was like, there's so many other interesting things going Mm -hmm. on. But once he sees how Thomas Seymour is taking advantage of Elizabeth, Mm -hmm. he has this sort of like moment with her where he's kind of just like, wake up. You know what I mean? But also like, and then they have another moment where he's just like, I'm so into you. Like, let's like do this. Let's make this work. And she's just like, nope. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, but total respect for for, you know, sometimes you see an actor play a character and then that's, that's it. it. Sometimes mm-hmm. yeah, it's definitive sometimes and you yeah. can't get away from it ever. 
So I respect yeah. that. Um, yeah. I also want to recommend Owen Emerson and Claire Ridgway's book, The Boleyns of Heber Castle. So if you mm -hmm. want to learn more about Anne's childhood home and like the secrets and about the architecture and all that stuff, it's really great. And those of you who just want to dive into uh, material background on Anne Boleyn, Eric Ives has The Life and Death of Anne Boleyn, which is sort of the more, I don't want to say it's more like scholarly, but that is like, that is the book. That is like yeah. the Bible for people who want to read about Anne Boleyn. Yeah. Um, and if you want one that's thinking a lot, also a lot more about like pop culture than Susan Bardot's The Creation of Anne Boleyn is a fabulous book. And it thinks about how Anne Boleyn is reimagined for each generation and how we see these different versions of Anne because of the political moment we're in. So I think it's really good. So those awesome. are my recommendations. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, I just dropped a link in there myself um dig podcast is uh, a podcast that's run by uh, a cohort of uh female historians um and back in 2019 they did an episode on amy robsart who is robert <gasps> dudley's dudley, yeah. wife yeah uh, and if you know anything about her you know that she died under very suspicious circumstances very mysterious <laughs> circumstances yeah. Um, and they, the, this episode really, I learned, I learned some shit. I learned some shit. They unpacked it. There's like documents that were lost until like three years ago. Lost. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like a whole, like wild. And then there were, um, they offered up some medical explanations for how a fall down, like three stairs could break a neck um mm. this and is so, reminding me of yeah. i don't know if you all watched rain on the cw <laughs> no i didn't i watched the first season and then was like nah oh my god okay so many people don't like it. i i think part of what i love about period dramas is i'm just very aware of what they're trying to do and yeah. i don't go in with like expectations that it's going to be historically historically accurate i'm more interested yeah. in what it's trying to do and then how audiences respond to it so yeah. that really frees me from having a lot of strong opinions that so many people do whereas i'm watching it i'm like oh my god i love this um but in season three i believe is when elizabeth comes in so mm -hmm. it's a show about mary queen of scots for those mm -hmm. of you who haven't watched rain uh -huh. um and when she's in France, her marriage to Francis, and then all the way up until her death, although it fast forwards a lot because yeah. the show got canceled, sadly. So they had to wrap things up really quickly. But you get to see Elizabeth and Dudley's relationship. And you also get to see Amy and you get to see her death. Uh, what? Okay, I'm gonna yeah. have to go. I'll. I'll I kind of want to spoil it for you all, but it's don't like, no, don't spoil okay. it. Okay. I want to watch it. Spoil it. I won't spoil it. But is it anything like the Philippa Gregory way that Amy Robsart's Wait, death here. is portrayed in that novel? I'll take my headphones off, okay. and then you two can. No, to be honest, I can't remember. Okay, it's been a long time since I've read Philippa Gregory. Okay, because so. she basically had like Elizabeth pushing her Amy down the stairs. And no, 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 helping that's not Dudley cover it up. Oh, okay. That's not what cool. happens. Okay. Do you want me to tell you what happens while Jess is in here? Yes. Yes. Because okay, I will so, never watch Rain. So <laughs> this is sad. That makes me so sad, but also I respect it. So in the show, Amy's super jealous of 
Robert's relationship with Elizabeth. Of course. And he, she starts spreading rumors about Elizabeth and, and basically he's just like, what can I do? I'm just going to like lock her in our like country home or in our estate. I'll lock her, lock her in her room so she can't get out. And she has this sort of, I don't know if we would consider it like a manic moment where she's like, you can't lock me up. I got locked up as a child. Like, Mm. and she starts kind of losing her mind. And then she's just like, wait a minute. Like, I know, I know he wants, I know Robert wants to be with Elizabeth and he wants to put me aside somehow. What's the only way to ensure they could never be together? And so she, he had already sent all the servants home. So she makes it look like they had a fight and throws things. She breaks the door down and she throws herself off the balcony. So the whole point is she was basically like, I'm going to ruin your life Raming and fuck it up for you. with her death. What? Yeah, because people will think that you got in a fight with me and you killed me. So you'll never get Elizabeth. Like you'll oh, never be together. Oh, that's so that, cold it was and kind, kind of brilliant. Of, it was really creative. So yeah, okay. anyways, I thought it was really creative. Okay, Jess, you can come back now. <laughs> <laughs> Jess is, is just safe? sitting there watching my face. Yeah, it's safe now. Yeah. It's safe now. Your face was blowing my mind. I'm like, oh my God, I have to start watching this tonight. All right. Um, Yasmin, any any other, like, let's hear your socials, anything you're up to, yes. what are you working on? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Yasmin Hashimi. I'm also on Instagram and my handle is Yasmin Hashimi PhD. Pretty basic. Is it not dot PhD? It's dot PhD, but I think when you type it in, like if you just type in Yasmin Hashimi, I'll pop up presumably. Um, And I just created the Instagram when Twitter was, seemed like it might crash. So, but I'm trying to keep up with it, you know, it's a different medium. Yasmin is a good follow all over the place. (laughs) I do occasionally thirst tweet about Henry Cavill. Mm-hmm. So if that was something that appealed to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Who could blame let's, you? Let's follow yeah. each other on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So what's something I'm working on? Um, I'm currently working um, on the Seeing Race Before Race exhibition at the Newberry Library, which is really oh. exciting. It's going to oh. come out. Um, it's going to open next fall through uh, September through December. Um, and really what it is, is a way of thinking about race in the pre-modern period. So medieval and early modern period. And we have broken down the exhibition into different sort of focal points, ways of thinking about it. So we think about, we think about like making race. How do we make race, mm-hmm. figuring race, performing race. We're just thinking about different ways that people in the past learned about or thought about or reimagined race. So it's really mm-hmm. exciting. Um, I'm so excited to get the opportunity to do curatorial work. That's been a big dream of mine. So to be able to be at an institution that's both a library and has amazing special collections that I can look at and that also has a gallery space to do an exhibition and do that has been so exciting. So we're doing just lots of behind the scenes stuff like we wrote our labels where um, that are going to be the actual labels and what things are going to be on the walls in the exhibit space. It's just so I'm so sort of like nerdy because I just love it. It's amazing because I've grown, I grew up going to museums. 
um, in San Diego, especially on Tuesdays, because Tuesdays was free museum day. So every Tuesday there was a different, there were different free museums. Um, and I would go with my mom and I just love thinking about how these got put together. What's the sort of like logic behind it? Who does each part of this? Like who chooses the items? Who then writes up the labels? Mm -hmm. um, how do you imagine like different items working together? It's just so much fun. So that's really I'm so what I'm jealous. working on. I'm just, and also I'm learning so much. I love being in environments where I can bring my skills, but also where I'm constantly learning. Like I want to be, I want, I mean, that's why I got a PhD is because I wanted to learn, you know, and I want Same. to be around other people who are excited to learn. So I never want to lose that as mm -hmm. I'm going through life that like I enjoy learning new things from different people. So that's what I'm doing. It's a lot of fun. I'm also excited once the exhibition is up to think about its sort of digital afterlife. That's something mm -hmm. I'm going to be working on a lot as like the public humanities postdoc fellow. I'm a fellow. Um, <laughs> where do they come up with these names? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm like really excited to think about the possibilities for exhibitions once they're done. Like how do you create material so people can still teach them. And one of the best parts about working at the Newberry is we have a lot of those items in our special collection. So anyone can come in and get a reader's card and they can go to our special collections and have those items. They could call them up and they can look at them. They could do their own research or even just for fun, like look at things up close. So it's kind of magical in that way to just be around all these like manuscripts, pieces of art, just all these older parts of history and things that other people touched. And then you get to touch them because you don't have to wear gloves. So, so come jealous. touch That's so cool. books at the Newberry. <laughs> I want to touch books at the Newberry. I want to do it. Well, this has been a lively and just enlivening and engaging and wonderful conversation. I wish it could go on forever. Um, thank you for your time and your, and your insight and you're just font of knowledge about all of this um so thank you yasmin thank you so much for listening everybody we hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started i assume i am so <laughs> every time i talk to yasmin i learn shit yeah um, oh yeah. Well, thank just, you it might even be because you didn't want to learn no. <laughs> i always want to learn it Oh yeah. Also tune in next time. We're back uh, uh, in, in for uh, next time, which I guess if you're hearing this, we're already back, but for us, it's when we come back, what is time? Uh, we will be back for house of desires, which is another Spanish golden age play uh, mm -hmm. with our most frequent flyer guest, Molly Ceramet. She's Yay. coming back to talk about Sor Juana with us. So it's going to be a hell of a good time. Um, also, question mark, our first female playwright that we're doing. Wow. Maybe. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it might be. I think, I think so. I think so, huh. which feels icky. It feels kind of wrong, but then but you kind of think about the era we're working in. Yeah, Shakespeare is what we do. It's in our name, so yeah. Yeah. he had a penis. Yeah. So they say, <laughs> unless you think Mary Sidney was the real author, uh, like some people It do. was Amelia Lanier. Sure, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Thanks, Yasmeen. It was grandma. awesome having you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks, Yasmeen. Whamlet out. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. If you enjoyed our podcast... 
please tell your friends, rate us, leave a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. For show notes and other stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. The land on which I live and work, colonially known as Stanton, Virginia, is the unceded territory of the Monacan Confederation of Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. The traditional custodians of the land on which I live are the Lenape Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Learn about where you live at native-land.ca. Get involved at ndncollective.org and find out more about the Landback campaign at landback.org. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. I heard of signing um, up for things. I signed up for Hive. I signed yeah. up for Post, Mushroom. I'm like, I'm tired now. <laughs> I'm just going to stay on Twitter. <laughs> Twitter's still there. It's still plugging away. Most of the people are still there. So yeah, I love how we all sent our goodbyes messages and then nothing happened. It reminded me of Y2K. Yeah. When people thought like the world was going to end and like I was in school. So I remember like being kind of scared and my friends and I were like, will we see each other Mm -hmm. after this winter break actually? And so that we were all so emotional. And then we came back and we're like, well, that was dumb.